It is a joy to be able to turn back to the Word of God with you and continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And we are, if you've been following along with us, we have been in this study of Matthew's Gospel for a while now. And we sort of find ourselves paused in Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4. And I really, at the beginning of the study, when we sort of looked at this chapter, I was thinking to myself, do I just kind of like pass over the names and sort of just make a note of who they are and then move on? Or do we slow down and take our time and get to know some of these men? And I, that was the decision I ended up going with. And I, I trust and I pray that it's been helpful for you as well. Uh, not that we're focusing in on the apostles themselves as men and their accomplishments as much, but really focusing on Christ who has called them. And if you've noticed, every single message that we've covered so far in this series uh, has really been trying to focus not just on the men and their ministries, but how all their ministries point back to Jesus. That's the goal. So we're going to continue to do that this morning. And the verses in Matthew 10, 2 through 4, really give the list of 12 disciples who become apostles, starting with Simon Peter, going all the way down to Judas Iscariot. And we're going to focus today on the last two names in the first list, so the first series. So the list of 12 names is really four or three groupings of four. That's generally how they kind of make out. The reason that we know that there are these groupings is because the same names are listed in the same order, and you can see there's sort of leaders in each group, and it just seems to be that was the way that it was, uh, it was uh, seen in Jesus' day. We're going to focus on the last two names in the first list. That is going to be James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Invariably, the study of James and John leads us into a discussion of the twin ideals of truth and love. Truth and love. We hear a lot about both of those things. We want to make sure that we uphold them, but we want to study what the scriptures teach about them. In the Bible, truth and love are high concepts that are held up as Christian pillars. And truth being more than simply what is true, the Bible really talks about truth as the embodiment of divine righteousness and clarity and authority and revelation. Truth is whatever God says, and I've heard the phrase that all truth is God's truth, and I would say that there's a measure of accuracy with that. Um, I think people use that sometimes to twist it around to say, well, you know, this sort of thing is true, so therefore God must have said it. That's not the way it goes, but God is a God of truth, and so wherever we find truth, we know that the Lord is pleased. Oftentimes we hear the shorthanded phrase in the Bible, though, capital T, truth. So not just things that are true, but what is the truth of the Word of God, capital T, truth, if you will. Again, meaning more that one is what is actually uh, factually accurate, but rather what comes to us from God in truth. The search for truth is the quest, really, of the ages, typified by Pontius Pilate's philosophical question to Jesus when he sees him. He says, well, what is truth? Really, he's posing this sort of question for the ages to our Lord, to which Jesus really answers elsewhere in John 14, 6, saying, I am the way, I am the truth. So Jesus himself is the embodiment of what is true. As Christians, we are called to speak the truth, to be honest, to have integrity, to speak factually, to speak accurately, to hold on to what is true, knowing that Satan himself is the father of all lies. And yet, while we hold the firebrand of truth in one hand, we are also called to manifest love in the other hand. More than simply charitable feelings, love is the obedience of self-giving. 
It's giving of yourself to other people. It's a gracious consideration of another's well-being far above your own. And the Lord typifies this love so much that 1 John 4, 8 declares that God is love. Not that love is God, some kind of this amorphous thing, but rather God embodies what it means to love people in and of His character and His nature. Jesus commands His followers, therefore, to love one another. He said, in doing this, you so prove to be His disciples. So we are called to love God and to love other people. And the two concepts, they work together, but sadly, they're not always practiced together. An attempt to show love without truth really produces this sort of malleable, unfounded standard of truth that's movable, which eventually turns love in an exercise of futility and even worse, wickedness. You can say that you love people, but if there's no factual truth behind it, it's just feelings, it's, and it's moving, the, the target's moving all the time. However, to focus on truth without demonstrating love is essentially to wound people by a graceless hammer often expressing nothing more than cold, dead orthodoxy. We don't want to be truth-tellers without love because otherwise we just damage people. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.15 exhorts us to speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love. In other words, to bathe our truth-telling in kindness and graciousness so that the truth may be better upheld. And this is a delicate balance. And to say that we've got this under control and we've nailed this, it's, it's impossible. You're always going to struggle in balancing those two things, but we must. We must be a people who, who traffic in truth, but also in love. And who better to teach us than the two men who struggled to do this the most, James and John. And so that's where we're going to begin our study with James and John. We first encounter these two men chronologically in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. It coincides with the calling of Peter and Andrew. Jesus performs a miracle, and both, uh, he, he fills both of their boats with fish. So Peter and Andrew, they have their boat filled, and then they call in James and John, and their boat gets, gets filled. And Peter sees the miracle, and he cries out, he falls down at Jesus' feet, and he cries out, Depart from me, Lord, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. However, Jesus reassures him, as well as the others. He says, do not fear, because from now on you're going to be catching men. And with that, he calls Peter, Andrew, and subsequently James and John to follow him as disciples. And so their calling isn't as distinct as Peter's and Andrew's calling, but James and John are in the mix as well. James and John are called the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee. Who is Zebedee? Well, we don't really know. There's no letter from Zebedee that talk about his biographical information, but we do have some hints about who this man is. Given the, name that his name, given the fact that his name is recorded, so they wouldn't just say James and John, the fact that they actually listed a, a father name, it's likely that Zebedee was a man of some kind of influence locally. He was a successful fisherman, and we, we can know that because uh, in Mark 1.20, it says that not only had Zebedee had his sons working with him, he also had hired hands working along with him. So he was prosperous enough to be able to afford purchasing help, and so that leads us to believe that he had more than just a two-bit fishing operation going. He had employees working for him. Furthermore, more, most scholars believe that Zebedee also had political clout as well which is hinted at in John 18, verses 15 and 16. 
If you remember back in your minds at the arrest of Jesus, uh, Peter and John both go with him. The other disciples stay back and go somewhere else. But Peter and John are with Jesus. They go uh, to the courthouse with him. Uh, No one knows who Peter is because he's standing around warming his hands and no one knows who he is. But John is recorded to be known by the high priest. The high priest knows John, this young man. And he has enough clout and influence to tell the doorkeeper to let Peter inside. So how does this young, this young man, this young fisherman, have any kind of clout with the high priest and with the, the temple and with the doorkeepers? Well, again, we think that he does have influence. It likely doesn't come by his own merits, but likely through his father's influence as well. So Zebedee was a father to James and John. Again, a successful fisherman, a likely political uh, a notable political figure, if you will. His mother, their mother's name is Salome, and we see a little bit later about her, something of her, and really she tries to flex her influence for the sake of her sons as well. But the earliest account that we really have of these two brothers together comes from Luke chapter 9. So I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 together. James and John have been given a special place among Jesus' disciples, they're always listed in the first grouping. And along with Peter, James and John also form the, the inner circle of Jesus. So even though he had the multitudes that were always around him, crowds, then he had kind of, we think, 70 people that he sends out, these he, people that he trained. And then we have the, the 12 disciples who he spends all of his time with. Then you have the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, these three, that really go other places with him and they get exposed to things that other people don't see. In this inner circle, they get to see amazing things not veiled to other people. One of those marvelous experiences occurs in Luke chapter 9, Verses 28 to 37, Jesus takes the three disciples up on this high mountain and he transfigures before them. He, he changes, he pulls back his humanity and he, he reveals his radiant deity, the glory of his deity. And of course, this experience does not humble these young men because afterwards they become self-important. The passage recorded from Luke 9:46 to Luke 56 Give us a window into the inner workings of the twelve and their own sinful bent. So look at Luke 9, starting in verse 46. Again, this is right after the disciples had seen Jesus transfigured before them. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing that what they were talking, or what, excuse me, what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him beside, by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. This is probably one of the most embarrassing instances for the disciples as they engage in this battle over one-upsmanship. Which one of them is the greatest disciple? And you've got to know that Peter, James, and John are probably waving their hands and said, you guys don't even know what we just saw. He told us we can't tell you anything, so we're not. But, you know, what we just saw was pretty amazing, right? You, you, I mean, you have to think that's how people, that's how we do it, right? So they're engaged in this, this debate, this argument about who's the greatest of all 12 of them. But Jesus intervenes and he gives them an object lesson. And he, t- he uses this child and he says, you have to be like this little child, If you're like this child, then you're great. What's the point? 
Jesus is telling them, he doesn't call his followers to greatness. He calls them actually to smallness and humility by virtue of which makes them great. So you and I are not called to be great people. We're called to be humble and follow Christ in submissiveness. And that's what he regards as great. But this is not sinking in for them yet. Look at verse 49, very next verse. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Now we hear from young John. John pipes up. He does his best Simon Peter impersonation. And the disciples, they see other followers of Jesus. They're performing miracles. They're preaching the gospel all in the name of Christ. And they respond not by rejoicing, but by becoming territorial and a little bit tribal. And in their pride, they try to stop this man from ministering the gospel because he doesn't belong with the twelve. The kicker is that John thinks it's actually noble to try to stop someone from doing Christian ministry. Look at verse 50. How does Jesus respond? But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. He's doing the same work that you're doing. Just because he's not with us and with me here, and he's over there preaching the gospel and doing things in my name, doesn't mean he's doing the wrong thing. Don't you think that Jesus knows about this man who's preaching the gospel over there? He knows about him. He probably called him to do it. But John, in his pride, thinks that that's a good thing to to stop this man because he's not with them. And so already in this passage, we've seen the pride manifested against other disciples, pride manifested against other laborers in the vineyard, if you will, and then we see pride against the lost, the very people they're trying to save. Look at verse 51. When the days were approaching for his, Jesus' ascension, he was determined not to go to, to, excuse me, to go to Jerusalem. He sent his messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, context here. James and John, they've just been up on the mountain of transfiguration. And they've seen Moses. They've also seen Elijah. They've seen these glorified bodies of these men. These are actually them. They're not just random visions. These men are with Jesus on the mountain, and the disciples are beholding this. And so Peter, James, and John beholding Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, it's hard not to imagine that the disciples are sitting there saying, look, we made it to the top. I mean, look, hey guys, there's us, and there's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Like, how much better do you get? We're in the inner circle now of all the pantheon of Jewish great leaders. We've arrived. This no doubt goes to their heads because when they see the Samaritans scoff at Jesus, their reaction is to call down fire from heaven. Who else does that in the Bible? Elijah. That's what he's famous for. So they get this Elijah complex and they think to themselves, we're going to burn up all the sinners who oppose Jesus. This account no doubt 
earned the brothers their nickname recorded in Mark 3.17, Sons of Thunder. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that'd be a pretty cool name. Son of Thunder, that's pretty good. Except for the reason that they would have been named this is because of their transgression. Look at verse 55 and 56. He turned and rebuked them. He rebuked them and said, you do not know what spirit you're of. In other words, who else does this kind of thing? He says, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. To save them. Jesus rebukes them for two things. First, for having a heart behind, the heart behind this statement. A heart that is so hateful and spiteful toward other people that they would want to destroy them in their anger. And the second thing he rebukes them for is for their lack of understanding of the mission of Christ. Jesus did not come into the world to destroy people. He came to redeem them and to save them and to love them, to call them to himself, to find lost sheep. We saw this all throughout chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel. He doesn't do these miraculous things to destroy people and blow them up. He's redeeming them. He's bringing them back. He's healing them. He's given them grace. Of course, we know that people are going to act sinfully. Of course, they're going to act sinfully. If they didn't act sinfully, there'd be no need for the gospel. We see the same thing in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We all know that verse, but verse 17 is just like it. The Son of Man did not come, or excuse me, for God did not come into the world to, to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So Jesus is not coming to destroy and condemn and ruin. He's coming to redeem but John and James, they received their rebuke, and you've got to think that every single time they would have heard their nickname, Sons of Thunder, Sons of Thunder, come, on, come here, I want to talk to you guys for a second. Oh. They would have just been hanging out with them. And, and it's recorded in Mark's Gospel, so that's at least 20 years, and the name is still there. They would have been reminded of their pride and lovelessness in seeking to destroy the very people they came to save. And this helps us think through a very important lesson, the value of holding on to both truth and love. I want to give you just an illustration of what this looks like even for us today. We understand that the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God and salvation. Because of our sinful nature, our depravity, God chooses to save people unconditionally. He gives these people to the Son who dies for them on the cross and more than this, he changes their hearts, he changes their wills and their minds, and he preserves them in his grace until the day of glory. These truths were subject of great discussion and debate in the 17th century, to which a group of Christians who follow the teaching of a man named Jacob Arminius rejected these doctrines. There was a council of Dutch scholars gathered together to address these issues, the points of contention, in what was known to be called the Synod of Dort in 1618 to 1619. And the result of this synod, this council, there were five canons issued, which have since become known uh, or called the five points of Calvinism. Now, I don't oftentimes use this term from the pulpit. I don't like to use it as much, because the, even the term itself is a misnomer, since it actually is the disciple of Calvin, Theodore Beza, who systematically put this theology together uh, for our purview. But furthermore, uh, Calvinism really, really is aptly named Reformed theology, and it consists of more than five points. 
So when we distill these doctrines down to such a, a small thing, I think we miss it. However, these doctrinal points, known as total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, uh, this is also known, or these are known as the doctrines of grace. The problem is this. So many times, adherents to these doctrines forget the grace part. There's a phenomenon known as the cage stage. Anybody ever heard of this before? The cage stage. What this is, is when believers discover these doctrines of grace in the Bible and they see them and they come to believe them, there's a temptation then to become prideful and a temptation to argue and fight with people who don't agree with you. I believe that this is a desire of earnest zeal. I think the desire is I want to win people over. I want them to see what I see, which is a great thing. However, it oftentimes comes off as boastful and arrogant, and it tends to ruin people and sour them to these doctrines. They don't even see the doctrines anymore. They just see this belligerent person who's trying to win them over to something that they don't themselves yet believe. This oftentimes leads to the suggestion that it would be better for this person, this young Calvinist, to get locked in a cage and wait until they mature enough and have godliness enough to talk intelligently and lovingly with other people. And so that becomes known as the cage stage. Lots of truth, not a lot of love. But in truth, these, those who understand and affirm the doctrines of grace should themselves be the most gracious people in the world. Why? Because we understand that salvation doesn't originate in us. That all of salvation is all of grace. That God bestows this upon us and grants it to us and calls us and elects us and loves us and dies for us and and, uh, sustains us and we persevere because of His grace. There should be no, no pride, no arrogance in this. Biblical truth, however, must be be matched with grace and love. Otherwise, you'll end up trying to call down fire from heaven and incur the Lord's rebuke. James and John remained close to Jesus during his earthly ministry, and they were right up with him until the end. Of course, at his arrest, nearly all the disciples scattered again, except Peter and John. And then we read about Peter, who denies the Lord three times, and flees in the midst of the night, sobbing in shame. But then John stays with Jesus. John's there with him. And he's with him during his arrest. He's with him during his trial. And he's in the crowd as Jesus is nailed to the cross. And John himself records that standing beneath Jesus, his his mother was there as well. Jesus' mother, along with his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then John is also there as well. He doesn't use his own name, though. He calls himself the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But John beholds this sorrowful scene of his master nailed there, his body slouching in agony, suffering on the cross, and his mother standing in front watching her son die in front of her. And there's a point when Jesus calls out from the cross in John 19, 26. He tells his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he looks over at John and says, Behold your mother. And with that, Jesus then charges this young disciple, John, with the care of his own mother, since her husband, Joseph, is probably already dead at this point, we think. But tradition tells us that John actually took that charge personally and diligently 
And he took Mary into his own home and cared for her just like a son would care for his mother, took her in, cared for her, and lived in Jerusalem for 20 years until she passed away. He was faithful to his charge. He treated Jesus' mother as his own. But Jesus entrusted his mother to the care of the disciple who would need to learn this lesson of what it means to love sacrificially other people. And with that, at that point, Jesus then cries out, it is finished. Tetelestai in the Greek means paid in full. All the sins, all the debts incurred by humanness, all of us, our sins have been paid for in Christ who belong to him. John witnesses firsthand the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. He later on writes in 1 John 2, he says, My little children, my little children, I am writing to you these things that you may not sin. Don't sin against God is what he's saying. But he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice paid for sin. And not only ours, but for those of the whole world. He got to behold what John the Baptist had foretold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John got to see what we only read and believe. John watched the Savior give his life as a ransom for sinners. A remarkable thing. On the third day when the women came to report back that Jesus was missing from the tomb, it's Peter and it's John who run down to find him. And John, you've got to love this in his own gospel, he writes that he ran along ahead of Peter and got there first. They're always competing against each other, aren't they? John runs down. John's the first disciple, the first apostle to open up and see this empty tomb and see the grave clothes laying folded there. But John, along with his brother James, they're in the room when Jesus appears to them post-resurrection in John chapter 20. But I want you to note this. John is the only disciple to witness the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's the only one. John and James are at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrives and indwells them. Afterwards, they begin, uh, they burst into the streets and they begin to preach the gospel. In fact, John is featured prominently along with Peter in Acts 3 and 4 as they endure the first wave of Christian persecution. Actually, turn to Acts 4 with me. As I'm preparing these biographical sermons on the disciples, I have to be very careful of what text to choose because many times there are so many texts that if I went to every single one and had you turn there, we would spend the entire morning simply turning and getting lost in where we're going. So I try to be specific of where we go so it's most beneficial for your eyes and for your hands. But here, Peter and John, they go up to the temple and they're greeted by a man who is unable to walk. He's paralyzed. And then in the name of Jesus Christ, they heal him and they They get him to stand up, and he he stands up, and he begins to run through the temple streets, the court here. The text says that he follows them to the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Of course, the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, they seize Peter and John, and they bring him in for questioning. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they 
had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whatever is right in the sight of God, to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was performed. And when they had been released, they went out, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Of course, they were rearrested later and beaten. We don't get to that yet today, but they have boldness and they have tenacity. And John, earlier, who was eager to smite his enemies. Now, the old John, even three years before, would have stood there in front of the Sanhedrin, hearing the things that they were saying, and they would have, he would have tried to call down fire from heaven. Jesus wasn't there to stop him. But now you see he's even grown. And he stands there, he takes punishment, he takes persecution, and he stands there and he proclaims the gospel to these men. And the people in the streets are glorifying God. He's joyfully submitting to his calling now. We see he's already grown a little bit, hasn't he? We see the same thing with all the disciples. All of them are more bold in their proclamation. Now they have steel in their spine and they're able to to bear witness and to suffer for the name of Christ. But all this does not come without cost. Acts 10 records the death of the very first apostle. Herod Agrippa, a seemingly zealous Jew, has seized several leading Christians, including James, the brother of John. And expediently, Herod calls for the execution of James. According to history, according to Clement of Alexandria, there was a Roman soldier who was leading James to the judgment seat, and he became overwhelmed with the testimony of James, hearing him proclaim the gospel. And he was overwhelmed by the sight of his courage that he turned and he begged James to forgive him for what he was doing. James considered his words for a second, and he responded to the soldier by saying, Peace be with you. And history records that he actually turned and hugged him, he grabbed him, and he kissed him. And the two men went off to be executed together. The Roman soldier then proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That seems to be, from history, the death scene of James as they're both beheaded. Remember back in Matthew chapter 20, if you know the story, the mother of James and John, Salome, she came to Jesus and she had asked him, if her sons could sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus at the kingdom. And Jesus asked the two young men if they were able to drink from the cup that he himself was about to drink, which means death. Well, at the time, they didn't know what they were asking for. But now James would be the first to know what that meant. John, on the other hand, continued in Jerusalem until Mary passed away. And then tradition tells us that John eventually pastored the church in Ephesus, the same church that Paul had planted. And when persecution came at the hands of Emperor Domitian, 
The Apostle John was banished to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And there he lived in a cave until the rest of his life, until he was gone. And it was really in the later years of his life that John was most prolific. All the writings that we have from John come from this period of his life. Years after Matthew and Mark and Luke had written their Gospels, John composed his own account on the life of ministry in Jesus. In addition to his Gospel, he also penned three short letters. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, toward the back of your Bible, that's also the same person. These are known as epistles. And then while exiled on Patmos, he also received a vision from the Lord. And from that vision, he penned the book of Revelation. It's known as the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the final book in the Bible. John is the only apostle not to be martyred, interestingly enough. He died of old age. And some scholars think that he died as old as 100 years old. And in that day and age is a very long time. It's a long time even today. He lived long enough to see the disciples all pass away. He lived long enough to do ministry and disciple other church leaders. He discipled Polycarp, Papias, and Ignatius. We can read about all their stuff in the, the apostolic writings. But what do we owe his length of days? Why did John live to be so old? Well, many believe that John was the recipient of a special blessing of the Lord. The fifth commandment in the Old Testament is given this way. Honor your father and your mother, that your days will be prolonged in the land. John's reward for honoring Jesus' mother, maybe that has something to do with it. The Lord granted him prolonged days on the earth. In fact, there was even a rumor that John was never going to die. We read about this in John 21. It's interesting. Uh, John records that Peter and Jesus are engaged in a discussion, and Jesus tells Peter about his own death, And then he turns, sort of in very uh, Peter-like fashion, in John 21, and he starts arguing, he he turns around, he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, one who leaned back on his bosom at the supper, and he said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? That's John. So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? You have to understand the context. Jesus has just told Peter how he's going to die doesn't like it. And so he says, well, what about John? What about him? How is he going to die? And Jesus turns and says, if I want him to remain until I come, what, what is that to you? Peter, if I want him to live forever, what, what business is that of yours? And so they all went, wait, what? John's going to live forever? What are you talking about? That's not the point, is it? Jesus says, follow me. Verse 23, therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So there was this rumor for a long time. And you've got to imagine that all the other apostles are dying off, and John's still kicking, and the church is going, wait a second, John's still here. And you get into the 80s and the 90s, and John's still here. What's going on? But the rumors of John's earthly immortality were greatly exaggerated. The Apostle John did die somewhere near the year 98 A.D. on the island of Patmos, an old man. What was John's legacy? What did he leave to the churches? Well, two great themes in John's writing. The first theme is this, believing the truth. Believing the truth. And the second theme, loving others.
Those are his two great themes. You could do a, a study of those two themes, truth and love, all throughout John's gospel, his letters, even Revelation. You're going to see it displayed prominently. Those are the lessons that he learned in his life. In John 20, he records the purpose of his gospel. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. He goes, my whole purpose in writing the gospel is that you would believe the truth of the word of God and believe the gospel of Christ and come to know him. Believers, people have come to Christ just by reading the gospel of John because they get to see who Jesus is. And Jesus cares that you believe this truth. And so does John. But as this great truth This son of thunder emphasizes in truth also the need for love. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word and tongue, but in need and truth. Don't just say you love people, but love people in their needs. Love them when it's the most most difficult time for them. 2 John 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son of the Father, in truth and love. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 1 John 4, 11. 33 references to Christian love in only three short letters. And while young John was about truth no matter what the cost, the mature John understood truth in love. It's said that when John was still alive and ministering in Ephesus, he was too weak to walk, and so he had friends and attendants that would carry him everywhere he went. And when he would go into the church being carried, he would pass by people, and he would say this phrase over and over and over again. My little children... Love one another. We seek to understand truth. We contend earnestly for the truth of the faith, and we should. We want to be a church and a people that is constantly setting the truth before the eyes of all who see and before the ears of all who hear. But let us also make sure that in our truth-telling, that we baptize all of that in love. Let us also be a church and a people that are the best at loving other people around us. Let us be a people of truth and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know know what love is because we know that you first loved us. You set the standard. You are the model for love. And Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves before other people and love them dearly. But Lord, in in the midst of all that, I pray also that we would be people of truth. We would not sacrifice and and deviate from truth for the sake of love, but rather be people who are truth-telling in our love. Father, be merciful to us. And even though we disagree on certain things, Father, we're, we're not all going to agree here on every little point of doctrine. Father, I pray that we would always agree on essential doctrine. But Lord, even as we're as friends disagreeing with one another, help us to do this in a spirit of love and graciousness. Help us to see other people as more important than ourselves and help us to humble ourselves before them. Father, we want to be faithful witnesses here. We care about the gospel. We care about our witness. Father, help us to do this well. Help us to learn from our elder brothers, James and John, 
who again in the zeal for truth had to learn love. I pray this would be for us as well, that we would learn how to do this well. Again, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. We thank you for your provision. And we ask for blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.